0: we are live we're going what's going on brother oh man not a whole lot i'm excited about today's podcast what are you up to uh very little we had uh, our worship assembly this morning heard an excellent excellent lesson about pu- being pure of heart it was wonderful brother sean McAllister did an amazing job presenting that we had several in attendance we're still not back up to our full attendance we still have some of our membership who are expressing some concerns over the COVID crisis and they're electing to to stay home, which I fully understand. I fully get that. And but but needless to say, we had an excellent service this morning. Um, just enjoying a beautiful day once again on God's green earth that He has given us, and just just enjoying life more or less. How about you guys?
1: Man, I hear it. I hear you. We are we're doing great. We're doing wonderful. We have just been enjoying the weather. You know, we like talking about the weather on this podcast to get us started.
0: Yes, it's always talk about the weather. It's raining, it's stormy, it's sunny, it's cool, it's, it's hot. V-
1: very in depth, very in depth. But yeah, man, we uh things have been going great. Our our business is starting to pick up a little bit now that things are are opening back up, so that's good on just our our personal front there. We're excited about that.
0: Awesome. Well, it's it's interesting to me and I you know, we talked about some people being concerned about COVID and one of the things that's so, so wild is all of the conflicting information that you're getting about masks. You know, one week it's highly recommended that everybody and their dog wears a mask. You need to wear a mask if you're going out and about and people are wearing their mask in their cars when they're by themselves, they're getting hypoxia and they're getting in car accidents. It's like, do you, do we have no common sense anymore? It's like, if you're going to go into a busy store, well, yeah, maybe a mask is warranted, but if you're by yourself in your car, it doesn't, really make a lot of sense. I, I don't know, but th- there was an, there was an article that I saw though that I thought was hilarious. And if I can find this, this headline, I'll post it in the show notes just because it's so amusing to me. And it gets into what we're going to discuss today with our, with our topic and a lot of Costco's and other businesses, Costco being the biggest and the most popular have made it a mandate that you have to wear a mask if you go into their store. Well, this dude shows up at a Costco wearing a Zorro mask and he's got this Zorro mask on looking like, you know, the wild, you know, Fox bandit from, you know, from the days of yore, whenever this was a popular TV show. And he walks up to the door and the person at the door says, well, sir, no, you have to wear a mask. He said, well, what's this on my face? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now you're not and talking she- about yourself, are you? No, I'm not talking about myself. No, I okay. bought a guy's sure. mask. Yeah. You know, Guy Fox from uh, V for Vendetta. That white mask with a mustache. Not a, yeah, I bought one of those for just such an occasion. So, but but anyway, this guy walks up and and he's wearing this Zorro mask. And this woman says, "Well, you can't wear that in here." He says, "Well," or she says, "No, you have to wear a mask." He said, "Well, I am wearing a mask." She said, "No, you're not." He said, what's this on my face? She said, "A mask." He said, "Exactly." And he walked in, which introduces us to our discussion topic for this episode. Episode which three, is Zorro. Which is Zorro, the Wild Bandit. Is it a sin to watch Zorro on television? Is it a sin to watch westerns or serials or other things? Should we even have a TV in our house? No, that's not what we're getting into today, guys. Because these are hot Um, topics
1: and everybody's wanting to hear hear us discuss this. And that's what we're (laughs) going to be talking about.
0: No, it's the idea of the law, specifically the violation of the law. What constitutes a violation of the law? And when we say the law, we're not talking about jaywalking or not wearing a mask in the Costco. We're talking about the holy law. Specifically, if we drill it down even more, we're talking about the idea and the concept that you hear a lot about the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. And there are some people that are out there that believe that those two are in tandem. You can't observe the letter of the law without following the spirit of the law and that it's impossible to follow the spirit of the law unless you also follow the letter of the law. So that's what we're going to discuss today. And I think it's a really important idea. It's something really important that we need to drill down and have our heads wrapped around. Because I can, I'll can i speak for myself on this. I used to ascribe to the idea that one could not follow the spirit of the law in any shape or form unless they were keeping the letter of the law perfectly or near perfectly.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's something that I... Really used to focus on a lot in my teaching is that you can do. Uh, you well, Lee. Can you hear me? I'm still getting a lot of feedback right now.
0: Yes, I can hear you just perfectly. Okay, so sorry me, about
1: that. Let me try to adjust a couple things
0: here. All right. Well, well, while you're adjusting those things and making those adjustments, I'd like to recount another story that kind of explains this idea. When the letter of the law supersedes good sense, sometimes there's a story of a woman. She was a queen consort in Siam. Her name was Sunanda Kumaritana, and she was a daughter of a Siamese king and was the half-sister of the first wife of king, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce this guy's name, but he was the king of Siam. And the king had two other wives that were her full sibling younger sisters. Well, this queen was subject to a law in her land that forbid anyone from touching her other than the king. No one could touch her physically. Well, while they were sailing down their royal boat to the royal palace, she fell overboard or no, rather the boat capsized and no one dared touch her because to touch her was to die. If you touch the queen, it was a capital crime and you would be put to death. And she drowned because everyone was too afraid to touch her. Now, that was a law that was certainly an unjust law, and that law was shortly changed thereafter by the king, understandably so. But there's a lot of people who look at the law in a very similar framework that those um, Siamese or Thai people looked at the law. The law says this, we're going to do this, we're going to keep the law no matter what the end result or consequences of that law are. We're going to be you know, more or less a deontologist whenever we approach the law in this way. And no matter what the consequences are, we have to keep the law.
1: Okay. Yeah. I think I'm back too. Can you hear me good? Or yes, well? sir. Or whatever the proper English description is.
0: Brother, you're from Alabama. It's whatever you want it to be.
1: And it's y'all. It's ain't. It's whatever. <laughs> Winder. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. Good. I'm back. I can hear you. I can hear myself. Yeah. There for a minute, everything just kind of went crazy on me though. Okay. Oh, but yeah. I was, I've been able to hear you, though. So yeah, I love that story, man. That definitely demonstrates really the way that I used to understand the Bible, the way that I understood what God had to say, His instruction to us. And it's this idea that no matter how well-intended somebody is, no, much, no matter how much faith, no matter how much sincerity and desire they have to follow God— if they are not meeting the the letter of the law, if they're not doing exactly what the law says as far as word for word, then they're not actually right with God. They're not really following God faithfully. And that's a very scary conclusion to come to because, man, I know for a fact, even sometimes when I'm trying to do the right thing, I end up purposefully choosing not to do the right thing. So I can only imagine If I would have continued to carry this belief with me when it comes to ignorance and other types of of situations that I find myself in just thinking, oh, no, what if I'm doing just one thing wrong? What if what if there's some sort of practice or belief or whatever it may be, even though I'm sincere, even though I want to follow God, if there's just that one little thing off, boom, that's it. And I'm lost. And that's that's a pretty scary place to be. And I was there for a long time.
0: Well, it's incredibly terrifying. and and I really appreciate the way you phrase that just now. whenever you said, you know, I will try my best to keep the law, but then I'll find myself willfully doing something against it. And then it's like, oh my goodness, because a lot of times whenever we have these discussions, there's a lot of people you held to this idea. I held to this idea. and there's still so many in our brotherhood. That hold of this idea that you have to keep it perfectly. And if you mess up in any way, then you know you you're you're at risk of losing your entire salvation, no matter what your intentions are. And there are some others who don't take quite as hard line of a stance and they'll say, Well, maybe if you make an honest mistake, you know, you're not willfully sinning, you're not willfully engaging in any wrongdoing. But if you just make a, a tiny mistake or some little error, Ignorantly, well, that's forgivable, but a direct violation of the law isn't. And part of what makes that a scary proposition is that you actually there's actually scriptural precedent for that. And I say that with scare quotes. None of you can see me, but I'm making the little quote unquote sign. There's scriptural precedent for that whenever you look at the account of Saul, for example, the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. And there's there's all these examples that exist. And so at, on its surface, it seems like it'd be silly to discuss this idea of the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law.
1: Well, and one thing that Lee and I were talking about before this started is we want to go ahead and define what we mean by letter of the law and spirit of the law so that everyone knows exactly what we're talking about. Sometimes this idea can can be misconstrued. It can be misinterpreted as meaning that it it doesn't really matter if you follow God's word, as long as you just have the right intent. And that's not at all what we're talking about. We're not saying throw out the Bible. It doesn't really matter. Throw out what Jesus said. Yeah. All that stuff. Jesus said, just throw it out. Just, just make sure that, that you have love in your heart and make sure that you just have the best of intentions and everything's going to be Okay. Uh, that's not at all what we're talking about. And by the way, if someone did have the best of intentions, that's not how they would approach the Bible anyway. <laughs> so, exactly. yes. so what we're talking about is the, uh, when we talk about the spirit, we're not talking about the personally. Now I, I know Lee, you and I have talked about this a little bit, but personally I don't, I, I like that phraseology, but I do not believe that I, I, that that's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians per se, when he actually uses the this exact phraseology talking about the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. I I personally like the word intent or purpose better than spirit because in that context where Paul's talking in 2 Corinthians, he's dealing more with a, the idea of the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant or the Old Testament versus the New Testament. And so what I'm looking at is the totality of how God has always operated and he's always operated by looking at the purpose or the intent of the law. That's always been his concern. And secondary to that has been the letter of the law. And even within the letter of the law, sometimes people can get too carried away and, and, and apply the letter of the law in a way it was never even meant to define itself, which I know that's what we're about to jump into here.
0: Well, and, it, and it, what's, what's so interesting to me, though, is, is that even with this and even with that caveat in discussing the intent behind the law, and whenever, if we say spirit of the law in this, you can interchange that with the idea of spirit of the law, intent of the law. We're talking mm-hmm. about the intentional purpose behind the law itself. In that, though, you still have the argument being raised, well, you can't follow the intent of the law without executing the letter of the law. Like you can't separate the two. yeah. But, but in, in scripture, if you really start to dive into it, you see that that's absolutely the case. The two often were separated. And in many times, the letter of the law wasn't followed, but the intent of the law was carried out. And in other cases, you have the letter of the law being followed to a T, but the intent of the law was completely ignored. That's obvious whenever you really begin to look at what went on in the Second Temple period. And then you start getting into the first century.
1: Yeah. And growing up, I used to hear sermons and of course, going to preaching school. I remember that how they talked about, we we can't just have the right form. We also have to have the right intent and how the scribes and the Pharisees may have had the right form, but they had the wrong intent. And that's what made them wrong. Well, what has happened is that really describes a lot of Christians today where they have completely neglected the intent or the purpose of the law to begin with. And they end up just following the letter of the law so much to the point that they're not even following the actual letter of the law anymore, (laughs) where they have, they have taken what the law says and they've applied it in a way that it was never meant to be applied. And so we'll go ahead and just, just jump in here. We've got a lot of material to cover and a lot of scripture. So, I hope you're taking notes, perhaps. If you're not taking notes, then this is something you could always go back to to jot down. But the first example that Lee and I have discussed we want to talk about is when Jesus touched the man who had leprosy. And, and Lee, I know you wanted to, to hit on this one pretty hard, so I'll, I'll give you a little time to do that.
0: Well, whenever you begin to discuss the idea of the letter of the law versus the intent of the law one of the first things that comes to my head is a lesson that i gave several years ago in discussing the sabbath whenever jesus i'm going to back up by, back a little bit before the leprosy part of this whenever jesus and his followers were walking through the through the fields the wheat fields and they were plucking heads of grain on the sabbath they were accused of violating the law of the sabbath And that's where Jesus makes the argument about David and the showbread. And then in this lesson I got into, well, Jesus didn't actually violate the law here. He didn't actually violate the law. There was no law against plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. This was a man-made law that the Pharisees had concocted and in their interpretation of what the Sabbath was so they could keep the Sabbath more readily. And whenever you start thinking about the violation of the law, this is usually one that comes up. This is one of the ideas that comes to mind. And another thing that I've heard other people say is, is, well, if you accuse Jesus or if you believe that Jesus actually broke the law of the Sabbath, well, you're agreeing with the Pharisees and you're on the side of the Pharisees. Well, that's really a straw man. That's not the argument that's being made. But whenever you look at that particular event that took place, Jesus really didn't break the law of Moses. He violated the law of the Pharisees, but he didn't violate the law of Moses. But there was another instance where Jesus touched the leper where he actually did violate the letter of the law. And to admit that is incredibly scary. And some of you may be listening to this and thinking, whoa, these guys are heretics. They don't know. They're, ta- they're saying Jesus violated the law of Moses. Well, be patient. Bear with us. We're going to break this down. We're going to drill it down and we're going to get there. In Leviticus chapter 13, the law regarding lepers is given. And it says here in verse 42, and if there is on the bald head or bald forehead, a reddish-white sore, it is leprosy breaking out on his bald head or his bald forehead. Then the priest shall examine it, and indeed, if the swelling of the sore is reddish-white on his bald head or on his bald forehead is the appearance of leprosy on the skin of the body. He is a leprous man. He is unclean. The priest shall surely pronounce him unclean. His sore is on his head. Now, the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. He shall be unclean all the day he has the sore. He shall be unclean. He is unclean and he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now, this is in Leviticus. That's that part of the Bible that we always skip over that we don't read because it's just a bunch of laws. But it's really important for this topic. In Leviticus chapter 5, a few chapters earlier in verses 2 and 3, it says, If any person touches an, any unclean thing, whether it is the carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of unclean livestock or the carcass of unclean creeping things, and he is unaware of it, he also shall be unclean and guilty. So for this person, it doesn't matter if he's aware or not. If he touches anything that's considered unclean, he's unclean. he is unclean. Verse 3, or... If he touches human uncleanness, whatever uncleanness with which a man may be defiled, and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty. So in, in Leviticus, you have the framework presented that if a man has leprosy, which was an infectious bacterial disease that manifested itself in the skin, and what it would do is, is it would cause the areas affected to decompose and die, even though the host was still alive, the tissue would die. Leprosy still exists today in the third world, but it's highly treatable. There are antibiotics that a person can take. And if you get leprosy back then, it possibly was a death sentence if your immune system couldn't fight it off. Nowadays, if you get it, it's if you have access to the proper medical care well, you're going to get through it, and you're going to be fine. But in this case, what we see in and, and what is germane to our discussion is the idea that if you were a leper, you were unclean. If you were a leper and someone touched you, they would then be unclean. And then in Leviticus, you have these rites and rituals that a leprous person were to go through if they were to recover from it. And if anyone touched a leprous person, there were rituals that they should go through to recover from it. So now we fast forward over here to Mark. Kevin, do you have anything you want to add at this point?
1: Yeah, well, this is just a very rigorous process that someone had to go through when it came to... Number one, protecting yourself from those who were lepers, and then also, if, as you pointed out, if you did touch someone who had leprosy, then you were, you were at that point just as guilty of not only violating the law because you did touch a leper and you were considered unclean, but also now you had to go through this same process as well, and so it was a, ve- a very. Uh, rigorous process. Lepers were looked upon as definitely the outcast in different communities. Nobody wanted to be around them. And so this was a very serious thing when you talk about leprosy. We really don't understand that as much today, at least in America, because that's something that we don't really deal with. But back then, this was a really serious thing.
0: Oh, it absolutely was. And these laws weren't intended to be mean spirited. They weren't mean laws. Leprosy is highly contagious if you don't know what's going on. This was a measure to protect the community. This was a measure to protect the people. So these were laws that were good laws. These were sane laws. These laws in the law of Moses protected the Israelites from being infected. It protected them from pestilence and disease and everything else that could come from it. Well, now if we fast forward to the book of Mark, we see in Mark's account in Mark chapter one and verse 40 that a leper comes to Jesus and he asks him, he implores him, kneels down to him, and says to him, "If you are willing, you can make me clean." And this story is such a powerful story because it demonstrates the love that Jesus had when he was on this earth and the love that he still has for us now. It demonstrates the love that God has for his people. yes yeah, what Oh, sorry, go ahead.
1: Well, I was just going to say what's interesting about this too is this man approaches Jesus and he wants, obviously, to be cleansed of his leprosy, which shows his trust and his faith that Jesus is able to do that. But also just a point that can be lost on many at times is that Jesus did not have to touch anybody in order to heal them. Uh, We see many times in Scripture where someone asked to be healed or someone Uh, or someone comes up to Jesus and asks him to heal somebody they love. We see the Syrophoenician woman's daughter in Mark 7, 24 and 30. We have the centurion servant in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. We have the Capernaum official son in John 4, 46 through 54. Those are all instances where someone wanted to be healed or they wanted Jesus to heal somebody, and Jesus just healed them. There was no touching. There was no being in his general presence. It was just, okay, fine, because of your faith, you know what? I'm going to heal them. And because of my compassion and because of my love, I'm going to heal them. So it's very important to note, Jesus does not have to heal touch somebody in order to heal them.
0: And that's going to make what happens next all the more powerful. Because Jesus, in verse 41, is moved with compassion. He stretched out his hand and touched him. And that's the point I want to emphasize here. Jesus reaches out his hand and touches the leper, and like you just said, he didn't have to do that. He didn't touch Lazarus when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Whenever he healed the lame man, he didn't touch him. Whenever he, all of the things that he did when that general came to him and he said, you know, heal my servant or heal heal this person, Jesus said, okay, yeah, they're well. Jesus didn't even wasn't even the same vicinity as they were, yet Jesus reaches out. And in his compassion, he touches the leper. he reached stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, "I am willing be cleansed." and as soon as he spoke, immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed and he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, "See that you say nothing to anyone but go your way, show yourself to the priests, and offer your cleansing, offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them." Now, some things I want to note here is, is that Jesus touches the man and heals him. And then he tells the man to go to the priest, show the priest that you have healed or that you have been healed, that you have recovered from leprosy, and then go through the rituals that are according to the law of Moses to be fully cleansed. So Jesus isn't telling this person to violate the law. He's not saying, all right, you're good, go on. He tells him to go and keep the law. But what we need to note is that Jesus touched him. Under the law of Moses, Jesus was not supposed to touch him.
1: And he did so very purposefully, too. It, this wasn't even unintentional, which, even if you touched someone who had leprosy unintentionally, then you had still violated the law. But Jesus, you couldn't even argue he was, he was doing this ignorantly. He did this very purposefully and he did this very intentionally. He, he knew that he was going to touch this man in order to heal them to, to make a point, which is interesting. Yeah. Jesus did this
0: to make a point. And and th- and that point is what we're we're circling around to here, because while Jesus instructs the man to go and observe those things that Moses instructed in the law that he needed to do to be made clean, that demonstrates that Jesus is aware of those things. Of course, he's aware of those things. He's the Son of God. But well, that, oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead.
1: Well, I was just going to say <laughs> when you when you look at the and this and I love putting it this way: the spirit or the intent of the law allows for exceptions not stated in the letter of the law.
0: Yes. And that's what we're really
1: getting at here, is that Jesus broke the law as far as the exact wording and as far as the specific letter of the law is concerned, But he did not actually break the law because the law, the purpose, the intent of the law was not put in place so that this man could not be healed. The purpose or the intent of the law was put in place to protect other people. And so Jesus, while technically violating the letter of the law, was not actually violating the intent or the purpose of the law. And I really like to put it this way, too, is that. When you come to the Bible, the way that you approach the Bible is greatly is is going to greatly dictate how you end up applying it. And so when we come to the Bible as some sort of legislative document of absolute statements, then if we apply it that way, we're going to find ourselves being very hypocritical. We're going to find ourselves being very inconsistent, and we're going to find ourselves looking at the Bible in a very contradictory way because just for a minute, Lee, I want to I want to give you just a few statements that Jesus makes that a lot of people have taken as legislative is, is really just le- legislative rule as absolutes, but that actually are not. So let me just give you a few of these. You have Jesus saying, do not call anyone a fool in Matthew 5, 22. But yet in Matthew 23, 17, Jesus calls the scribes and Pharisees fools. You have yeah. Jesus saying, do not take an oath in Matthew 5, 34 through 37. Yet you have Jesus himself taking an oath in Matthew 26, 63 through 64. You have Jesus saying that if anyone wants to slap you on one cheek, turn to them the other. In, in other words, if you know somebody wants to abuse them, just go ahead and let them do it. But then we see Jesus doing the exact opposite by protecting himself from harm in passages such as John 7, 1. And also, if Jesus said that if someone wants to sue you, go ahead and give them more, go ahead and give them your 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 cloak, go ahead and give them an extra tunic. In other words, Jesus, it seems to be teaching do not seek justice, but yet Jesus taught there is nothing wrong with seeking legal justice when he taught on the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18, 1 through 8. And finally, Jesus said, do not pray in public, pray in your room in Matthew 6, 6. Yet Jesus prayed in public, at least we know, on two occasions when it came to the feeding of the five and 4,000 in John 6, 11 and Mark 8, 6. So here's the point that I like to make with this is that when you look at what Jesus said, everybody says, oh, when Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, he was teaching this higher moral standard and you have to live up to this. Well, Jesus basically right there just broke five of, of, of his commands, if you will, that he said that he gave his followers to obey. Well, actually, he didn't break them. He didn't break the intent or the purpose of them. We have to understand that the spirit or the intent of the law allows for exceptions and qualifiers that are not actually stated sometimes in the letter of the law. And so I always say either Jesus violated his own laws or he is teaching us how to interpret. And, imply his, and apply his commands. And this is the Christocentric ideology or theology. It's the idea of understanding that Jesus is telling us and demonstrating how to actually interpret and imply the instructions that he gives.
0: Well, he's our ultimate example. And whenever you drill down the name Christian, it means to be Christ-like, to be like Jesus. And so often, whenever we approach the scriptures from a legalistic framework in which we elevate the letter of the law above the intent of the law, or we say that the intent of the heart doesn't matter only if you do XYZ, then we're really not being Christ-like at all. Because, like you said, Jesus is the example for how this applies and how this works. And it and you know, whenever you were talking about this idea of what Jesus was saying it reminds me of when he was talking to the Pharisees who says you know if any of you have a have a donkey or an ox or livestock i can't remember what the animal was that falls into a pit on the sabbath are none of you going to go and dig your animal out of the pit and his point is is that sometimes there's a greater moral calling or a higher calling than that of the strict letter of the law
1: yeah and and what's interesting is they themselves understood that they themselves knew That even when a letter of the law was given, there were unwritten there were unwritten exceptions. And yeah, Luke 13, 15 there talks about untying your animals to make sure that they have water to drink. And Luke 14, 5, Jesus said, Wouldn't you save your animal or your servants or your family if they fell into a ditch or well? Jesus is making that point because he knew it would resonate with them. He knew that even they, these men who said that you have to follow the letter of the law to the exact iota, would even understand. That compassion calls for exceptions and that we don't need to just look at the letter. We also need to look at the intent because the intent oftentimes help, uh, helps us to understand what the letter of the law actually means. And, and I was going to make a point here that I, I found this very interestingly, and I don't even know if we've ever discussed this or not, but I found this extremely just fascinating in my in my studies. Actually, somebody brought this to my attention one day. But let's go back. You had talked about this earlier, the story of David and the showbread and how the disciples of Jesus were hungry and they began to pluck and they were eating the grains of uh, the heads of grain on the Sabbath. And then the Pharisees had interpreted the law to mean that they couldn't do any work on the Sabbath. Well, technically, if you look at what the Sabbath law says, it says, do not do any work on the Sabbath, period. That's the letter of the law. And so they had interpreted that to mean you literally could not do anything any work on the Sabbath. And so once again, this shows us that by the letter of the law definition, you could make that argument because keep in mind in Numbers 15, 32 through 36, you know, a man was killed. He was stoned for picking up sticks.
0: sticks. And
1: and we want to try to give context that just isn't there. We try to say, well, we, we don't really know why he was picking up sticks. And I agree we don't. But the point is, is that if I was a Jew thousands of years later, and I had a Bible verse that says, do no work on the Sabbath, and another Bible verse that says, this man picked up sticks and he, and he was, was stoned, then I would have all the right in the world to accuse someone of violating the Sabbath if they're actually going through and they are eating the heads of grain on the Sabbath. I would certainly have a right to argue that from the law uh, or the letter of the law. And of course, Jesus' point is, well, let me, let me give you a few illustrations. And I love the illustrations Jesus gives, because first of all, he talks about David. And he goes all the way back to the Old Testament because, you know, they love David. Of course, anything David did, they're going to listen to. And wait, wait, wait a minute, you're talking about David here. So he alludes to the example of David and the showbread. And what, what Jesus said is that nobody could eat the showbread except for the priest, because that's what the law stated. The Levitical law taught that only the priest could eat the showbread. But even though not stated in the letter of the law, the purpose of the law allowed David and his men to eat the showbread without sinning. And Jesus even goes on to give another illustration about how the priests, they work on the Sabbath. Technically they're, they're if you want to go by the letter of the law, technically they're profaning the Sabbath, Jesus says, but yet they're found guiltless. But here here's what I think is interesting, not necessarily all that, which all that's interesting too, but notice that the rule is given in the law that only the priest could eat the showbread, right? But then Jesus gives this unstated exception. Even though it's not written in the law, he gives this unstated exception and say, well, David, even though he didn't have a book, chapter, and verse as his exception clause to be able to do this, compassion and the intent of the law is what provided the exception that the letter of the law did not. Now, furthermore, though, there are even further exceptions not stated by Jesus even in this context. Because if a priest bought a servant or had servants born in his house, the law in Leviticus 22, 10, and 11 says that they could also eat the showbread. So here's what you have. First, you have the letter of the law that says nobody can eat the showbread except the priest. Okay, that's it. There's one exception, that the exception is only the priest. That's that's really what Jesus gives here. Then you have the written exception of the law that says the servants of the priest could eat the showbread but then you also have Jesus giving an unwritten exception while not even alluding to the written exception. So all That's this dimi- wild. Yeah, so, so you know I hear people which we're going to get into marriage, divorce, and remarriage sometime in the future, but here's what's interesting. People want to take an exception and say, well, Jesus said, accept, this is the only exception. Well, even when Jesus himself used the word accept, He allowed room for other exceptions, which is just mind blowing, because once again, Jesus is showing us that we've got to understand everything in context. When we begin to approach anything Jesus or Paul or by that, for that matter, any of the biblical writers as an absolute legislative document or piece of command that we have to just look at in isolation we're doing ourselves a disservice, and we're going to be coming to to some some conclusions that are going to parallel not Jesus, but the scribes and Pharisees. And so that's why I say that the way in which we apply God's commands cannot contradict the purpose in which they were given, which is what Jesus would end up saying in Mark 2, verse 27. He said that the Sabbath— was, was given for man. Man wasn't created for the Sabbath. And so whenever we begin to take a law that God has given, and we apply it in a way that contradicts the actual purpose in which it was given, no longer are we even following the
0: law at all. Well, there are so many people who would ask, well, how would you even determine what the purpose is? Because it seems as though that the purpose would be declared within the law itself. And that's something that we're going to kind of unwind and unpack as we continue on through this. But whenever you're Entrenched within a legalistic construct and your hermeneutical approach to the scriptures or the way that you read the Bible is, you know, faced with all those trappings of, of legalism. What we're talking about now is a really scary concept because it leaves room beyond the absolutes. In legalism, like like you and I have talked about before, it gets it, it's a really comfortable place. Yeah, in, in, in a mental way, in an intellectual way, it's a really comfortable place. But whenever you really begin to examine it and you really drill it down, it's really an intellectually bankrupt perspective to take because you do have to compromise in ways that you shouldn't compromise. The You have to take inconsistent approaches. You have to take inconsistent positions and you end up putting yourself in some really uncomfortable positions when you really begin to examine and call into question some of the things that you just take for granted. And one of the things that we take for granted, or I should say that I took for granted, I don't want to speak for you, is this idea that Jesus never once violated the law. He never violated the law of Moses. And by that, I mean, from a legalistic perspective, he never violated the written law that Moses had, the law that was was applicable to the Israelites. He never violated it. And yet we see a clear violation in him touching the leper we see another clear violation in in John 5 that we'll get into here in a minute where he healed a man on the sabbath and what what really and it makes so much more sense to me now what you just said this idea that you can't execute the law in a way that violates the purpose behind it and we have no higher ethic than that of love for god with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love for neighbor as ourself. Jesus himself said that those are the highest ethics that a Christian can approach. So if we execute the law or our execution of the letter of the law, if we are looking at that, but our execution of it causes harm to neighbor or causes harm overall, ultimately in the long term, to the cause of Christ, then we're probably not executing the law in the right way, and we probably need to reorient ourselves.
1: Well, and I think that's what scares people the most, is when you make a bold statement, such as what you just said, Jesus violated the letter of the law. He did. He, he violated the law. The example that, that Lee just gave not too long ago with Jesus healing the man with leprosy, that was a direct violation of the letter of the law. And we'll now get into one that actually if if you don't like that example or if you still want to say that maybe that's still still a little too obscured of an example. uh, Or
0: people will say, oh no, no, he didn't do it. He didn't do it. You're just not understanding it correctly, brother. You just don't understand it correctly. You see, he didn't violate. Oh, well, okay then. Let let's move on and let's go to the next example.
1: Which is which is actually interesting to me before we go to the next example. Those who will argue that he did not violate the law will then go on to proceed to give you all sorts of exceptions that are not written in the law as to why they believe he did not violate the law. <laughs> <laughs> so either either way someone wants to go with it, they actually find themselves redefining the way that they're approaching Scripture, which is wonderful because the way that the scribes and Pharisees have uh, shown us not to approach Scripture has unfortunately been the way that I know I have approached it and you've approached it in the past and many other Christians have approached it in the past, especially in the Churches of Christ— and so I think it's a wonderful thing that we even, we acknowledge, no, 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 there has to be more there. Yeah, I know that's what it says, Kevin, but that G- Jesus couldn't have actually violated it because of this, 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 and we're not actually given Bible. We're simply giving all of these additional exceptions that we believe should be given, even if they're not explicitly stated, which is interesting because on other things, when there's we no exceptions, no, yeah. we, w- we won't go that far. The only reason we're doing it with Jesus is is because we believe that if Jesus violated the law, then he could have not been the sinless sacrifice. And I don't want to delve into that right now because we're going to talk about that here a little, in a few minutes. But that is why. That is why people will, will fight tooth and nail to try to defend this idea that Jesus in no way ever violated the law because they believe he could have not violated the law. So even when the Bible says Jesus violated the law, as we're about to clearly and explicitly see, people will still say, well, no, that, that can't be what it meant because Jesus could not violate the law. And that shows if we have this, this presupposition that we bring to the table, we will rewrite the Bible to make it say anything and everything we want instead of changing our presupposition. So let's, let's get into yeah. this because people are probably thinking, well, what example are you talking about? So the, the example is when Jesus, expli- it's actually explicitly stated that he violated the law. But before we get there, I do want to read the laws about the Sabbath, if that's okay, real quickly.
0: Yeah, go ahead. Get after it, brother.
1: Okay. So the letter of the law, we just need to be reminded here. The letter of the law, all it says is do not work on the Sabbath. That's all it says. That's all it says. And we see Exodus 20 verse 10. The Bible says that the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord. In it, you shall do no work You nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is written or who is within your gates you shall do no work. Then we have Exodus thirty-four verse fourteen. It says, "You shall keep the Sabbath; therefore, it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For anyone who does any work on it shall be put off shall be put to death and be cut off from his people." Now I'm going to tell you if if that is what I'm hearing that if you do any work on the Sabbath, and by the way, there's no exceptions here. If you've noticed that Jesus doesn't say whoever does any work except for the priest on the No, no, no. There, there's no exceptions here actually stated in the law. Now, the way Jesus interpreted the law shows us that there were unwritten exceptions, but there were actually no exceptions given in the law. So when someone says, "Well, you've got to have a book, chapter, and verse to show an exception." Well, if that's the case, then you're going to even have further reason to believe Jesus violated the Sabbath well, because there were no exceptions.
0: Well, and at that point, you're you're essentially calling Jesus a sinner. And I want to make I want to make this abundantly clear at this point: Jesus did not sin. He yes. was sinless, and we will drill that down momentarily. But Which think, seems. Oh,
1: which seems impossible because how could Jesus violate the letter of the law but not sin?
0: If there you haven't figured
1: some, out if you haven't figured out where we're going yet, well, just hold, just hold on tight and we'll get yeah. there in a moment.
0: Yeah, there must be something else afoot here. But yeah, I mean, we see that that's the case. There's no exception given there about what that means to work or not work. And then the Jews, they had a long tradition over the next several thousand years of interpreting the law of Moses to determine, well, what's work? What isn't work? What constitute work? What doesn't constitute work?
1: Yeah, and you have all sorts of special meanings, definitions, debates. I mean, this stuff divided different Jews and different rabbis because they wanted to give different definitions of what that meant because all it says is do not work.
0: Yeah, and if if we're going to be... You know, if we're going to call Bible things by Bible names and use Bible terms and let the Bible be our ultimate guide, none of those things really matter because the Bible says don't work on the Sabbath. So what did Jesus do exactly? What was it that he did? It's over in John, isn't it?
1: So, yeah. So I actually want to read this because (laughs) it's—I was actually reading an article when I was studying this. This has been a while back on someone supposedly refuting— the idea that Jesus did not uh, or refuting the idea that Jesus actually violated the Sabbath. Their conclusion was that he did not violate the Sabbath in any form or fashion. And I found it interesting. They were not actually willing to deal with this passage. They never even alluded to it, which is funny to me because this is the clearest example we have. So if you're going to do a whole study on trying to prove Jesus did not violate the Sabbath, why would you leave this important passage out? And here's what it says, John 5, 17 through 18. So Jesus had just healed a man. Well, healing sounds like work to me. It does. It really does, right? I mean, I, I if if you tell me not to work, that means I'm going to lay down on my couch and 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 really do nothing. If someone calls me and says, "Kevin, I'm hurt. Can you come do something?" That's work to me, right? I mean, that's work. So Well, yeah, it's work. So Jesus just healed a man. It says and this is what Jesus says, "My father has been working until now." Notice how Jesus is using these these words working my father has been working until now and I have been working. So Jesus is saying I am working on the Sabbath. He is actually admitting that. But if that's not enough, look at verse 18. There and this is John saying this. The apostle John says therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he did not o- he not only broke the Sabbath but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Wait a minute, because he what? He not only broke the Sabbath. So the scribes and Pharisees accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. Jesus admitted to breaking the Sabbath by saying, I am working and doing my father's work on the Sabbath. And then the uh, inspired apostle John said that Jesus broke the Sabbath. The Sabbath.
0: To me, you can't really get any more clear than that. And so, what that tells me is it lays bare and lays to rest the notion that in order to be pleasing in God's sight, you must perfectly keep the letter of the law in every sense. Because we have some clear biblical constructs, some clear biblical teaching on this. In the scriptures, we see examples. We see it as crystal clear as it could be. Jesus says, I have been working. John, in his account, says the Jews were angry at him. And John doesn't say because he was accused of breaking the Sabbath. He says because he broke the Sabbath. He did it red-handed.
1: Yeah, he actually, he technically broke the letter of the law. So, When when you when you look at that, here's what happens to most people. They end up trying to find a way to find some passage, some way to excuse what Jesus did. Oh no, no, he couldn't have done it. He couldn't have broken this. He could. There's no way. There's no way. And here's why, because Hebrews chapter four verse fifteen says that Jesus was without sin. So Hebrews four, and by the way, I believe that. I believe that Jesus was and is our sinless sacrifice. Hebrews 4.15 says Jesus is, was without sin. But you come to 1 John 3.4, and it says that sin is violation of the law. So do we have a Bible contradiction? Did John perhaps misunderstand something? Maybe the Holy Spirit was off that day when, when he was leading John to write this down? Maybe what, what, How are we to understand this, Lee?
0: Well, to me, it seems like there's something else going on when we consider what sin is. And I think we need to know what sin is. I mean, the Bible clearly teaches that God hates sin. But so often we view that to mean that God hates overt violation of the letter of the law. But if Jesus is the sinless sacrifice— then it seems to me that there's something more to sin than just merely violating the letter of the law or failing to keep a specific commandment or ordinance.
1: Yeah, this isn't a contradiction.
0: No, not at all.
1: Yeah, this, this actually defines for us what sin actually is. And here's what's interesting. You can keep the intent of the law while violating the letter of the law while not sinning, because you're you're according to the Bible, according to Jesus Himself, you are still fulfilling the law. So blasphemy—that's blasphemy. You, That's blasphemy. <laughs> yeah, and see, and that and that blows people's minds. In fact, I, before we kind of go any further on this, I want to even pull out an Old Testament example to show that this isn't just New Testament God at work. This is this is the this is the one true God who we have always known. I was in, hoping you'd go there. Yeah, in Second Chronicles thirty. I have yet to hear a a Church of Christ preacher who holds a legalistic approach to Scripture, and once again, I'm not saying that to be ugly or judgmental, but th- those who hold- it's an
0: interesting thing to note.
1: Yeah, th- those who who hold to the idea that you have to keep the letter of the law perfectly, and they won't even say perfectly; they'll just say that you have to keep the letter of the law. They will allude to passages such as Leviticus 10 with Nadab and Abihu. They'll go to 2 second, um, second Samuel 6 with Uzzah. They'll go to all these different passages. But what they will fail to, to recognize, first of all, is the context And second of all, they fail to at least acknowledge these other passages that we see in scripture. So 2 Chronicles 30, just to give you a little context, Hezekiah is the king, and he's known as the restoration king, which I find very interesting because he's the one that's known as getting things back to the way they need to be. Israel was in shambles. It was in a mess. Uh, there really wasn't that many good kings <laughs> when you look at and study the kings of Israel. So here you have Hezekiah, and he is getting things back to the way they need to be. So they were going to celebrate the Passover, but look at what the text says. This is 2 Chronicles 30, verse 18. It says, A majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulon, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the pas- Passover contrary to the law. They ate the Passover, contrary to the law. But listen to this. But Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. And then verse 20 says, And the Lord heard Hezekiah, and he healed the people. So here is a clear-cut case of individuals who were doing something contrary to the law. It says they were doing it contrary to the law. And Hezekiah prayed to God and God accepted them because they were keeping the purpose. They were keeping the intent of the law of the Passover. The whole reason for coming to the Passover was not just so you could go through these rituals. It was to give glory and honor to God while fellowshipping with one another. But then here's even what's more interesting, I dare say, than that. If you continue reading, it says in verse 23, The whole assembly agreed together to keep the feast for an additional seven days, and they kept it for another seven days with gladness. Another violation of the law. There is no book, chapter, and verse that says you can keep this feast an extra week. How dare they? If 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 I was a Church of Christ preacher back then, which I know that that couldn't have happened because this was during (laughs) a different time, but this would have been paramount to. People who are not baptized for taking of the Lord's Supper on a Tuesday night. I mean, that that that's exactly what this would be paramount to. I mean, if that's not cause to send somebody to hell right then and there, you know, as a as a as a former Church Christ minister, I don't know what would have been. But yet we see not only did Hezekiah pray for them, God accepted them. And Lee here, though, is the is the cherry on top of this beautiful story is it says in verse 26 so there was great joy in Jerusalem for since the time of Solomon the son of David king of Israel there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem and the priests and the levites arose and blessed the people and their voice was heard and their prayer came to God's holy habitation in heaven now God's eyes are too pure to look on sin if this was something that would have been sinful God could have not accepted this but yet he did even though they violated the instructions, even though they violated the, the actual specifics of the law, the letter of the law, they were still accepted by God. And it says that there has not been a greater celebration of God's people since that time. That, isn't that
0: something else? Oh, it's incredible. So and the, great,
1: the greatest celebration of all God's people were, were people who were uncleansed, according to the law, and who kept the, the Passover... More days in the law prescribed. You could.
0: <laughs> well, and it, it's it's such a empowering story, at least for me, because this was one of the whenever I first came across some of your materials. Whenever you and I reconnected, this was one of the f- probably one of the s- first articles that I read. Maybe the third or fourth article that you had written. You had an article written about this on on your website, mm-hmm. and. It was, I love the books of the Kings. You know, a lot of people skip over some of those or they skip over Chronicles. I love those books. They read like an action novel to me and I can see in my mind's eye, you know, everything taking place and all of that. But even in reading through Chronicles, this, the points that you brought out of that were things that I had never noticed. They were dots that I had never connected. And this was one of the other dominoes that fell that led me to begin rethinking some of those other positions I had held. And this idea that if you violate the specifics of the law, then you have sinned. It's not in keeping with what we see in scripture. No. And and,
1: and that gets us back to, cause I want to make sure I tie this back to the, the point I wanted to make. And that is when you look at what Jesus did going back to John chapter five, Jesus did not violate the intent or the purpose of the law. Thus, he did not sin. And that's exactly what we see in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, is that the purpose of the law was being kept. Thus, there was no sin. You have to violate the intent. You have to violate the purpose of the law in order to actually sin. And when you continue reading in the same context, after Jesus once again was being accused of healing someone on the Sabbath, Jesus actually Interprets this for us, man and this is beautiful. This is why I love Christocentric theology, because it gets us to understand how to understand the Bible, how to interpret the Bible. John 7:24, Jesus says that we are not to judge according to appearance. In other words, just because the letter of the law says something, that's not enough. That's not enough. You can't just judge according to the way the letter of the law appears, according to the way it appears somebody is following it. You can't do that because if we were to do that, then all of those people God accepted and not just accepted, but he heard their prayer. It went up to his holy habitation. He was in fellowship with them. We would have condemned those people, Lee. The very people God no. God accepted, we would have condemned. But yet God accepted them. Why? Not because they kept the letter of the law perfectly, no, but because they kept the purpose of the law. And so this is what Jesus says in John 7, 24. We're not to judge according to appearance. We're to judge according to righteous judgment. Righteous judgment is what we are to judge with, which is funny to me because I was, when I was the most legalistic, I would use John seven twenty four to justify my condemnation. When Jesus is actually teaching the opposite, Jesus is telling people, yeah. if you want to judge... You can you you the the only judgment you can use is righteous judgment. You judge someone according to the purpose and intent of the law, not according to the appearance of the law. Sure, the law says do not work on the Sabbath. That's true. That's true. But you've got to look deeper than that, according to Jesus Christ.
0: Well, and a lot of times we will judge the intent that a person has rather than the intent of the law. Yeah, and we look at rather their or we look at their actions. And from their actions, and I, and I think that this is true to a point, I think in some cases you can extrapolate intent and mindset and where someone's heart is based on the things that they do. I think that that's true. I mean, if someone's pointing a gun at you, they probably don't have your best intentions at heart. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty obvious. But there there are other times in which we will castigate one another and we will judge one another. Because we are reading into something that we shouldn't, we take a posture that we shouldn't. We think that we can read the intention of somebody and read their heart based on their actions in some ways, and and we can't. We we act as though we are God, or we we put God's shoes on ourselves, and there's sh- shoes that are too big for us to ever fill. But we think that we can do that. And one of the examples that that I think really fits this idea really well is what's going on with COVID. You know, we mentioned the humorous story of a dude in a Zorro mask at the top of the podcast, but in our brotherhood and on the one cup side of things, there's a lot of friction going on right now with how the COVID crisis has been handled by some brethren. Yeah. There's, there's mainly three different people or three different outlooks or perspectives on this. And perspective number one is, is that the government has called, In states where the government has called that we need to cease meeting for a period of time to prevent the spread of COVID, that what we need to do is is we need to suspend our worship services. And what we can do is is we can meet, individuals can meet in individuals' homes. The other perspective is is that we can suspend services. We won't meet in individual homes because that constitutes a divided assembly, and we won't get into all that. We probably will later at some point in the podcast. We won't get into that now. Just follow along with me. And then the third perspective is, is that we will continue to meet, or I guess there are four perspectives. The third is we will continue to meet because that is what Hebrews ten twenty five says we ought to do. But if you feel as though you should stay home, if you are at risk or you're tending to someone who is at risk, then you stay home. And when you're ready to join together with us again, then do that. And then the fourth perspective is, is we will continue to meet and you must meet with us. And if you don't, you're a weak Christian and you're violating the law. Well, I had a conversation with um, one of my brethren not too long ago, just a couple of days ago. And we were talking about this situation that had that had come up and they were talking about how they didn't agree with the idea of meeting in smaller groups and members homes and that they didn't agree with the suspension of services. And for my part and where I am now, I think that continuing to meet. But if people want to stay home, then go ahead and stay home. I really feel like that's the best thing to do. I'm not going to castigate anyone that disagrees with me. And I had made the comment that if, you know, a congregation believes they should suspend their services because of this crisis and then come together on the other side of it, whenever it's all said and done, I said, if they believe that, I said, I'm, I might not think that's the best approach, but I'm not going to condemn them for that. He said, well, I will. Cause that's wrong. That violates the law. And in doing that, they're just, you know, they're just, they're doing the wrong thing. And I said, well, now hold on a second, hold on a second. Because to them, they may be doing it because of their love for their brother. And they don't want to cause their brother to get sick. They don't want to cause their brother to come to harm. And I can see that. You know, I can see that that's the issue. And he said, Well, well, they may just be afraid of, you know, getting a fine, or they may just be afraid of getting sick. You know, that it's probably just because they're afraid of that. And I said, Well, now hold on. Now you're now you're judging their heart. You're making a claim to know what's going on in their mind. You don't know what their intention is. If they say that the reason why they're doing this is because they're looking out for their brother, I'm going to take them at their word. Yeah, and, and, and a lot I think of this... Never,
1: well, I was just going to say a lot of this exposes to the, what I call, small view of God, where we just believe God is more concerned with us showing up and sitting down in a chair pew for an hour and throwing back a little grape juice and and some, some bread so we can say we did what God wants us to do, which hopefully in future episodes we can even get into a lot of where our tradition comes from in Christendom as a whole in America yes. and, and how so much of this can actually be traced back to paganism in the way that we actually w- – so many christians don't want a relationship with god i mean there there have been many christians i know of who teach that that's actually a sinful idea and they teach a very distant a, a distant view of god where you just have to show up and do what he wants you to do and then and then it's just that and that's why so many people are are scared and they're upset because they really believe their salvation that, that is dependent upon them going sitting down paying homage giving their their sacrifice to their god so they can say they did it for that week and it's really just exposes in my opinion a completely different view of god than what i
0: have yeah well and to me it seems like we need to be careful About calling into question the motives and the intentions of our brethren, Mm -hmm. because because we have brethren in our one cup circle that have said that they are going to suspend their service. They're in the minority, but they said they're going to suspend their services until this is over and they're doing it out of an abundance of caution and love for their brethren. And then there are people who disagree with that approach who are saying, well, no, the real reason you're doing that is because you're afraid <laughs> of getting sick. Yeah, the you real don't reason trust you're doing God. that is because you're afraid of getting fined. You're afraid of the government. You just don't trust God enough. And to me, that's, that's the, one of the most insulting things you can say because you are deigning to hold the power of God in your own mind. You're saying that you can see into their hearts. Jesus could, but we can't. And if someone says they're doing something for X, Y, or Z reason – the way I understand it is, is that we need to take their word at it because that's what love does.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, the, that's the problem with a letter-of-the-law approach where we don't take anything else into consideration. We just look at word for word what we see that the instruction is, and like a robot, we turn around and we do it. We don't take anything else into consideration. I mean, I, I remember when I was a, a kid— And mom and dad, when I was when I was old enough to stay by myself for a few hours, when they went out, they would tell me now, don't leave this house for any reason. And they would they would look at me, they'd make me say it, you know, say that back to us. You know, are you going to leave it? No, I will not leave this house for any reason. Well, let's say all of a sudden a fire started and I'd be like, well, (laughs) mom and dad told me not to leave this house for any reason. So I guess I'm just going to sit here and burn because that's what mom and dad. (laughs) That's what mom and dad would want me to do. Of course, that's not what my mom and dad would want me to do. Even as a child, I would have understood that if something like that would have happened, then there would have been exceptions, even if mom and dad would have not told me that. And that's why it's so important for us to understand when we approach God. We approach him through the lenses of Jesus Christ because Jesus is God. Jesus is is God incarnate. I mean, he came to earth to show us. He is, he is not just the word on paper. He was the living word and is the living word. And he taught us how to understand the very word in which he gave. It goes back to some of those examples I gave earlier. If you take a literal word-for-word word legislative approach to the Sermon on the Mount then every time someone asks you for something, you have to give it to them. Is that really what Jesus is saying? <laughs> if if someone comes in and wants to rape your wife or your daughter, you just have to you just have to stand there and let it happen. Is Jesus actually saying that? Is Jesus is, is Jesus saying don't seek legal justice if somebody's taken advantage of you? Are these really all the things Jesus was teaching? No. But if you take a literal letter of the law approach and believe that these are absolute statements and say, well, Jesus called us to this high standard, you can come to these conclusions, even though they're so nonsensical in application, even though it doesn't make sense, even with the way Jesus applied his own teachings, we ignore that and we isolate these statements as absolutes. And then we go and we bind them on others, which, by the way, is what Jesus said in Matthew 23. He says, you guys place all these heavy burdens on on your fellow brethren, and yet you're not even willing with one of your hands and fingers to help lift them. And so it, it's just very interesting when we take all this into consideration to see how Jesus taught us to interpret Scripture. And it goes back to the heart in First Samuel sixteen seven. J- Jesus has always, or God has always, looked at the heart. Um, Joel two thirteen. The Bible says, "Rend your heart, not your garment." Psalm forty verse six. Jesus said, "Sacrifice and offering you're not delighted in." But you've given me an open ear, Burn offerings and sin offering you have not required, but my heart. Well, wait a minute. The law did require burnt offerings and sacrifices, right? It did do those things. But David realized that it wasn't about the form. It wasn't about the method. It was about what was behind it, which was the purpose and the intent. And God wants our heart. Same thing with Psalm 51, 16 and 17, Jesus, where David says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despair. So when you are following God with a broken and contrite heart, you are following the law. You, you, and that doesn't mean you're always going to, by the way. There's a lot of times I sin intentionally, right? I mean, we always want to talk about unintentional sin. There's a lot of things as a Christian that I will do intentionally and look back and think, I shouldn't have done that. I was wrong, but I even knew it was wrong when I was doing it. But that is why Jesus died for us. Even though it's all about having the right heart for God, we're we're oftentimes not even going to do a good job at that, <laughs> and that's why oh, Jesus yeah, came to sure. came
0: to this earth. Well, and if we could do it perfectly, He would have never had to come down here. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it would have been a waste of God's time. And I think Paul made that point a few times in in Scripture. But with the time that we have left, one of the things that that I'd like to kind of get into a little bit, if we can, and maybe just riff on it, because this is something that I've given a lot of thought to, and I'm not really sure what the right answer is or how to approach that. So I'd be really interested to hear what your thoughts are, but the idea of balancing grace with obedience, this idea of the intent of the law while still obeying the letter of the law, because I think that we've demonstrated, and I believe that the scriptures demonstrate the idea that you can, that the letter of the law can be violated and it's not sin. I I believe that that's, that's the case. I mean, we have good scriptural evidence for that. But my question is, is like, how far does that go? Because a lot of times whenever you're in a legalistic sense, you you don't believe that you can violate any aspect of the law whatsoever, and you're terrified of doing so. You're terrified of ignorantly violating the law in such a way as that you lose your salvation. But then whenever you get into the grace side of things, and this is kind of where I struggle some too, is, is, is it's wondering, and I, I can't think of any other way to say it. But the idea of, well, how far does grace go? And it's not the idea of how much can I get away with? I think if you come to it from that angle, you're not coming to it with the right heart. But how much does it cover anyway? Like in Hezekiah's example, they weren't cleansed according to the law. They had just kind of rediscovered the law. And with Hezekiah, they they really didn't understand what was going on until they received information later, which is why Hezekiah prayed that they would be forgiven. And then they extended the the feast and everything else. So there are times where that may happen and God's grace is there to cover us. But I mean, we both agree that not anything goes. I mean, how does a Christocentric and love-centered hermeneutic still demand kingdom living? How do we make the determination of how mm-hmm. that works? I'm still working to figure that out.
1: Yeah, and that's something that I think is going to be an ongoing question in, until we die. But he, here is a couple things. To b- Even to back up before looking at that. The first thing is, you know, you're teaching grace, right? If people do come away asking, does that mean I can do everything? <laughs> and Brandon actually was the one who brought that to my attention, Brandon Johnson, because he said, if you study the writings of Paul, and when he talks about grace, what is their response their response is we can do anything we want. And Paul has to correct that. And Paul goes, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. Hold on, hold on. No, that doesn't mean you can do anything you want. But that is the approach, that is, that is the response when Paul taught grace. So when we teach grace properly. Nobody is ever going to come away saying, "Ooh, I've got to do everything perfectly. No one ever came away with that. But you yeah. did have people who came away thinking that they could that ended up coming away thinking they could do anything that they wanted. And Paul, of course, corrected that. And But he didn't even correct it from a legalistic perspective. And I believe, Lee, that this question in and of itself still has a legalistic tone to it, if that makes sense.
0: No, I think it does. And it, it just goes to show just how deeply rooted legalistic programming can persist in your mind, even when you've really worked hard to let go of it and move beyond it. I mean, there's always going to be a sliver of it that that remains that can try yeah. to get its puts back into you.
1: Well, and, and so, because th- I've asked the same question, I think anybody who, who leaves a legalistic system asks that, and not, as you pointed out, not in order to see what all they can get away with, but as a legitimate question, because it, there's still a sense in which we want to make sure we're doing everything we're
0: supposed to be doing,
1: right? It's still this yeah. idea, well, okay, I, I want to make sure, you know, how much is it going to cover? Well,
0: that's not to say there's nothing you have to do. And I, right. I think that's the way that this that these kinds of conversations can get misconstrued is this idea. Well, you're just saying there's nothing you have to do. And it's like, no, but how do we make that determination?
1: Well, and this is the best way that I've heard it explained. And just from my study, the way I explain it is when you look at the idea of Christianity being a relationship and just me being being one with Christ, me having this relationship with him, me knowing who he is and coming to know him. There are several passages that talk about obedience and what their purpose is. And if you look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, the Bible says we're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works in order to be his workmanship. You see Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 teaches us that grace trains us in righteousness. And which is very interesting to me because that means these people already have grace. They are they already they're already saved. And yet they're being trained in how to live faithfully. We want to do it the exact opposite and train people how to live faithfully and then say, if you do it good enough, you get grace. But Titus 2, 11 through 12 says, no, no, grace, when you're in grace, that's what teaches you how to live the life that God wants us to live. And Jesus has called us to live. And we see in Matthew 5, 16, that our works are to glorify God. I heard somebody say, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbors sure do. And, yeah. and I love that because that's the whole point is we're to love each other. We're to help one another, not because God needs us, but because God is trying to help us to uh, help other people, which is the second greatest command, not loving God's the first, of course, but then you have loving, loving your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbors do. So what does kingdom living look like with grace? And this is the way I put it. As high as God's standards are, his grace is even higher. So when you look at Romans 5, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 20, for example, the Bible actually says that where sin increased, grace increased even more. And we look at passages like 1 John 5, 13, where John says, I write that you may know you have eternal life. And you have Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where there is no condemnation in Christ. And so God gives us his ideal of kingdom living, but he also knows that we live in the real. And so I always explain it that it's a relationship and it's similar to vows made at a wedding. You know, when you, when you first get married, you make all these vows and, and I love love songs, man. I, I love boys to men. They're my favorite, They're my favorite group. I love them to death. I love their love songs. And they have all these songs about how they're never going to make you cry. And, you know, you sing these to your, to your girl, and you talk about how you're going to always treat her right. And, you know, if a tear ever falls, it's not going to be because of me. And then like two weeks into your marriage, you know, you're like, well, man, I've like violated all these songs and all these vows and everything else. <laughs>
0: well, I'm and, more of a Metallica guy anyway.
1: <laughs> and, you know, at a, at a wedding, you make all these vows. Well, I'm always going to treat you, you. You know, I'm always going to put you first. There's a Greek word for that. It's called baloney. I can guarantee you I've not always <laughs> put Bethany first and she hasn't always put me first. I dare say that we, we very rarely even do that. But that's the ideal. That's what we're committing to. We're committing to this ideal But we also realize that as humans, we're not always going to meet it. In fact, as Christians, we're never going to meet the actual perfected standard while we're here on Earth. We're never going to do that because we're humans. And so I always say that this this changes things from a. and I write about this in my book from a legalistic perspective where you're looking at it from a law versus a relationship. And in a relationship, there's boundaries I've heard people say, well, that means you can, you just believe you can do everything you want. No, in, in, in the relationship, there's always boundaries, but the way those boundaries are viewed, it's viewed differently. I'm not, I'm not scared that if I do one thing wrong, Bethany's going to leave me and that's it. I'm not afraid of that because I know she loves me and I love her. We have a relationship, but that also means that there are going to be times that I mess up and she's going to, she's going to forgive me. And I know she's going to forgive me, but when we completely abandon God, and this is, I know we're, we're probably getting into almost a different topic at this point because we're already in this podcast pretty deep here as far as time's concerned. But the conclusion I've come up with, and I believe is biblical, is that you literally have to abandon your relationship with God. You have to abandon your relationship with Christ and say, no more. I don't want anything to do with you. This is it. And, you know, when you we understand that from a relational perspective, right? I mean, if you're in a relationship, there's going to be times that you mess up, they mess up, but there are also clear cut cases where someone in the relationship has completely neglected, abandoned and says, I'm I'm done. I don't want anything to do with you. It's like a race. You may look horrible while you're running, but people can tell if you've dropped out of the race or if you're still in the race. And if you haven't dropped out of the race, it doesn't matter how slow you're going. You're still in the race. And there's a lot of people who they may be going a lot slower than you and I are going but they're still in the race versus those who are like, I'm done. I'm no longer going to run the race anymore.
0: Well, and I love how you make this relational, Kevin, because likening it to the marriage makes it perfectly clear to me because I love Kim. I love her more than anyone on the face of this earth. And I love my kids, but I love Kim more. And I don't worry about her leaving me. I don't worry about her cheating on me. Is it possible? Of course it's possible, but I don't worry about it. I don't give it a moment's thought. I know that she loves me and I know that she doesn't worry about me cheating on her. I mean, is it possible? Of course it's possible, but it's not probable at all. It's never going to happen. And there are times where she has made me upset maybe five or six times in the near 15 years we've been married. And I can't count the number of times I've probably made her upset. But she hasn't just left me. You know, she hasn't, you know, that didn't just torpedo the whole relationship. It's all just over. There's forgiveness there. Yeah. And I I really like how you, how you phrase that and how you put that together because it helps me make sense of it.
1: Well, and, and that's why I don't think it's issues. You know, we we yeah. especially as legalists, former legalists, we want to we want to categorize everything. Like, well, can it, can you do this? Can you do this? And some people may even go to Second Chronicles thirty and say, okay, well, Kevin paralleled that to baptism and and the Lord's Supper. So I guess that means God's grace will cover this and this, but but it won't cover this and this. No, no, no. That's not that's not what we're doing here. We're no. showing the principle that it's not about these individual issues. God's not, and that's what David said. David said, you're not concerned with sacrifice. Well yeah actually he was that's like kind of the whole Old Testament system but David knew that wasn't the point. David understood at the end of the day he God wanted a relationship with him that's what he wanted He says, I, I don't care if you tear your your garments and put you know ashes on your head and and that's that's not what I'm after. I'm after your yeah. heart and if you're doing all these outwardly forms beautifully but you don't know who I am, which by the way, Matthew seven twenty one, another passage that we need to get into probably for a different episode, but the idea of, of doing the will of God is not doing everything perfectly. Verse 24, it's knowing who he is. That's what that's what the will of God is. The will of God is to know him. John chapter 17, verse three, Jesus said that I come so that, that, that you may know me. That's the will of God that we know who he is. And so people have taken Matthew 7, 21 and turned it into another legalistic passage. We well, You can do a lot of things for God, but if you do one thing wrong, then Bible says you can't go to heaven. No, Jesus is saying you can do a million things in my name and you can do them correctly. But if you don't know who I am, if you don't have a relationship with me, it, it's all for nothing.
0: And that relational concept makes it real because we understand how to navigate that. Like if if Kim for Mother's Day, if I bought her a, a M1 Garand rifle from World War II, she's like, well, what's this? Why did you buy this for me? What is wrong with you? But if I were to buy her something else, something that she wanted or to give her flowers, I know her. And because I know her and I'm endeavoring to know her and have a relationship with her, well, I know what she wants. And if we are pursuing Jesus, we can know what Jesus wants. And that should be our our motivator in serving him. Does that mean we're always going to give him what he wants? Not necessarily. I mean, there are going to be times where we screw up and we might buy him an M1 an one Grand for his for our anniversary and he doesn't want an M one Grand. But
1: well, and, and honestly, I would like if you want, I think we already know what we're going to talk about uh probably for the next episode if you're good with it, because in my book, I do several chapters about the the practical approaches to this. And I, and I feel like we've discussed it a little bit, but I want to really flesh this out a lot more because I think this is what people are interested in. How do you apply everything we've just talked about? And so I would like to get into this in, in a lot more detail. And maybe we can do that if you're good with it next episode and talk about these different relational, um, what I call relational illustrations and actually kind of f- uh, flesh some of this out, if that sounds good with
0: you. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here first. Episode four <laughs> of the Exploring Faith and Pursuing Grace podcast will cover relational illustrations and how to navigate this. Yeah, we've gone on for, for quite a bit of time. I know we said we'd try to keep this in an hour, and we're almost 20 over at this point. But if we could just quickly summarize everything that we have discussed in this, what we've talked about is the idea of the spirit of law and the letter of the law. And by spirit of the law, we mean the intent. And what we have essentially said in this podcast is that the scriptures demonstrate and Jesus himself demonstrates the idea that in keeping the law, there's an intent that goes into it that is supersessionary; or it supersedes the letter of the law. And sin is when you violate that intent, not necessarily violating the letter. Yeah, I'm handing it off to you now. That's oh, that's okay, what, all what right.
1: <laughs> Sorry, I was plugging my computer up, so <laughs> I, I was about to run out of battery. Um, everything you just said, um, but yeah. <laughs> 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 but no, it is, and and I think just the 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 summary of this is that sin. Can only take place when the intent of the law is violated, and I actually make the argument, and, and I'm not going to assign lead lead to this statement I'm about to make. But I do not believe that there is ever a time in Scripture where someone can show that someone was in sin because they violated the letter of the law while keeping the intent of the law. I don't believe there's a single illustration or an example. I believe every single time someone was in sin is because they violated the spirit or the intent or the purpose of the law. There are many times where people violated the letter and the the letter of the law, as we've already seen, and Jesus being the main one, and yet still was not in sin. But there are no examples, no times that I'm made aware of in scripture that I know of. And by the way, I, I'm familiar with Leviticus 10, one, one and uh, one really one and <laughs> that's, two.
0: That's what I was thinking and, about. And, and we, and we may talk and head. actually
1: we may talk about some of these next week because what people want to do is they want to just quote these where it looks like God just went just, you know, kind of all of a sudden schizo and just just struck people dead. All you know, we also have Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. But with, with those passages, there is a lot more to the context that indicates that they did not have the best of intent. And especially, I even go as far with Uzza. To me, Uzza is about the only one you can truly argue because chances are Nadeb and Abayu were drunk. They really didn't care. Um, but with Uzza, it, it seems like that I would say that that's probably the closest one could argue. And I will say that the reason why I don't believe that one could still even argue it then is because when you look at that context, they were already carrying the Ark of the Covenant in a way that God had told them not to. And the Ark was a direct representation of the glory of God. And furthermore, I don't believe that we can say Uzzah's soul is lost. I don't believe that we could even say that Uzzah as, as a human, that God was actually consigning his soul to hell, but that the, the law actually stated if somebody touched that for whatever reason, they would die. So that would be more like capital punishment under the Jewish law than it would be God judging someone to their e- eternal destination.
0: Yeah, well, and even so, in talking about this, you even have instances where the letter of the law is kept and it's still declared sin. Like And Malachi 1 and 6 and 8 come to mind for that. Yeah. So I, I really like how you put that, though, because you put it very succinctly, is that you cannot sin if you keep the intent of the law. Or in order to commit sin, the intent of the law must be violated.
1: Yeah, and I don't, and that's why I don't think with Native and Abayu and, and Uzzah both indicate that they were not, Uh, possibly, well, I believe it's clear in, like I said, Leviticus 10, that they were not keeping the intent or the purpose of the law because of the way they were actually approaching God. But also with Uzzah, the same can be said with the lead up to what happened. Because most people only know that Uzzah touched the ark and and God struck him dead. They don't realize that if you go back and look at the context, there's a certain way they were to cover the or carry the Ark of the Covenant, which signified their respect for God, and they were not doing that.
0: Yeah, they should have never been on an ox cart in the first place.
1: Well, and can you imagine, the, the? it said that if anybody touches the Ark, they would die. Can you imagine if Uzzah touched the Ark and didn't die, what that would do? To the to the people who saw that, they would say, look, God said, you know, you you touch the ark and you'll die. But Uzzah did. And I don't even know if this is really the presence of God. So you've got a lot more at play than just is something right or wrong in those examples. So even the ones that someone might could possibly argue, you can't even really argue those, uh, in my opinion, that those certainly cannot be cases where you could say here was someone who had the best of intention. They were keeping the purpose of the law. And, and yet God still condemned them. I don't believe that you could say that with any of those examples or any other examples I'm familiar with in scripture. So that to me is very powerful. And especially when you look at 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul talks about love, he says that if you die for the cause of Christ, but you have not love in your heart, it profits you nothing. That's pretty powerful that it's more, a lot more about the heart and the intent and the purpose than it is what you're willing to do for God outwardly.
0: Absolutely. Well, I think this has been a really good discussion. Those of you listening, I really hope you get something out of this. I hope that this helps you in your walk. Please share our podcast with your friends, share it on your social media outlets, give us a five-star review. We're in Apple podcast now. I'm still waiting on the approval th- from Google. We're on Stitcher. Share it with your friends. Give us a five-star review. This is going to put us in front of more ears. And brother, I'm really looking forward to next week's discussion on these relational illustrations. It's going to be really good. Let's do it, man. I'm looking forward to it too. Sounds good. Well, thank you all very much for listening. This is Lee Grant and Kevin Pendergrass signing off, and we will see you once again next week.
1: God bless you.